We are going to continue our series this morning <clears throat> entitled Here and Now, uh, looking at the several statements that Jesus made uh, regarding the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like this or like that. And today uh, we're going to be in a familiar text, one that we've actually spent the last couple of weeks uh, talking about. We're going to go back to that well and draw something a little bit different today. It's so Matthew chapter 13, if you have your Bible uh, handy this morning, Matthew 13 is where it will be. Last weekend, uh, I experienced something that uh, I have never actually experienced in person before. Uh, I'd seen it in movies and on television, but never actually seen it happen right in front of me. I was in a wedding uh, out of town last Saturday, uh, my childhood best friend, um, and uh, the massive wedding party that was like, I think she had like 11 bridesmaids, and so he had to find six friends, um, and so... Um, some of you will get that at lunch today, and you'll email me and thank me for that. So, uh, so I was standing, it was this outdoor wedding in Holly Springs, Mississippi, which is exactly how it sounds. Um, and so uh, I'm standing there, and, and at the rehearsal, they had a ring bearer uh, that was not having a good day. And, uh, and so they actually audibled. He was supposed to come down that aisle and, and bring the pillow with the rings, but they audibled out of that after seeing Grant just gronk spike the pillow onto the ground and hit his mom. And they were like, you know what? Maybe we should rethink this. And so there was a change to the, the, the responsibilities that took place. We get to the ceremony, and uh, they get to the part of the wedding. You've... Those that, that are familiar with that get to that part where they do the rings, and they, they put the ring on the, on the hand, and my, uh, my buddy's best man handed him the ring, and he placed it on, on his soon-to-be bride's uh, wife's finger, said the vows. And then it came time for the, 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 the bride to place the ring on the groom's finger. She turns to her maid of honor, and her maid of honor could not have looked more terrified. And you know, you've been to weddings before where it's like this, like, oh, that's funny, what a good joke. And it wasn't until I heard the bridesmaid that was standing with me go, huh! and I was like, oh, this isn't a joke. <laughs> See what had happened? Because they had made the change, no one had clarified, hey, you're going to have to grab the ring. And so we're all standing out in this field in Holly Springs, Mississippi, about 100 yards from the house that everything's taking place in, and we don't have a ring. So one of the bridesmaids, they just panic, and one of the bridesmaids goes and runs into the house, and, you know, she, and she's hiking her dress up and running across this gravel road, and I think if she would have fallen, we would have started over. Like, we're just like, okay, maybe this is just not God-ordained today. And so she comes, goes into the house. This poor pastor, has just, he's filibustering. He's, he's doing a stand-up comedy routine. All he can do to fill this space that felt like an hour, it was really like three minutes, but it felt like an hour. They come back, they, they give the ring, she has the ring in hand, there's a big applause, and then she, they go through with the ceremony, and there's that space after you walk out where uh, you're, you're in between the ceremony and the reception or whatever else is next, pictures, whatever it is, and we're all the wedding party together, and we could not have been harder on this maid of honor. We are just, I mean, you had one job. Like, and she's laughing, the bride was, the bride was cool with it because she admitted, she was like, I should have clarified that this is going to be a change. They made, a, they made a, a fun kind of memory kind of thing, but we were just thinking, you have one job, literally the only job you could have had today. Get dressed, bring the ring. That's it. And she didn't bring the ring. And we were just ribbing her, man, just absolutely giving her the what for, right? What happened in that moment is that everybody's job became nobody's job. It was assumed that somebody was, of course, going to bring the ring, and then 
The next person assumed it, the next person assumed it, the next person assumed it, and ended up that everybody's job became nobody's job. I wonder if you've been there. Maybe in your family where something is assumed that you're going to pick the kid up, and that kid gets left with me. Some of you know what that's like. I'll refrain. Or maybe it's at work. There's a project on your team, and, and you just assume this person's going to send this email, or this person's going to do this, this part of the project, and that person assumed the other person's going to do it, and there's communication here all the way around, and everybody's job became nobody's job. Today, we're going to look at this same text, Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to look at this idea of responsibility, this idea of ownership, this idea of, of this, this taking the, the bull by the horns a little bit and saying, I've I got it. I'm going to handle it. And what does the Bible say about that? What does Jesus say about that? Matthew chapter 13. To recap, we're looking at a parable. Jesus used parables often as a, way, as a means to teach, an illustration, a point to be made. Instead of just saying the point about the principle of the kingdom of God or an ideal about Christian, the Christian faith or the Christian life or walking with Jesus, instead of just saying this is how it should be, he often would use it as an illustration. He would tell a story that may or may not be true, may or may not actually be based on something that happened. It may just be a, a, an analogy, a metaphor. In Matthew chapter 13, this, this text is a metaphor. It's a, it's a story about a farmer. We read this last week. Jason has covered this for two weeks. And so we're not just going to come through the whole thing. We're just going to grab one piece of the pie this morning. Matthew 13, we'll read in verse 24. He presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while people were sleeping, his enemy came, sowed weeds among the wheat, and left. And when the plant sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also appeared. The landowner's servants came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed into your field? Then where did the weeds come from? And he says in verse 28, an enemy did this, he told them. So to, to pause there just for a second. So there's this farmer who's worked in this field. He's planted this seed, got, got the wheat growing, and they've they got the, the workers out in the fields, and everything is just moving right along, right? And then all of a sudden, an enemy comes in in the middle of the night, and he plants these seeds of discord, these seeds that end up being weeds that will harm the field, that will take over the crops, and that will ultimately keep them from being what they should be. And they wake up and they look out and they go, yo, what is happening in this field? What is going on, right? And so we pick up this, this moment right here where we see there's an enemy. Pastor Jason talked about that last week, the importance of knowing the nature of our enemy, how he works, how he maneuvers, what he does, and how he does it. And then this question is asked. The servants look at the master and they say, so do you want us to go and pull him up? And it's that question right there that I want to hang on for a moment. They go to the farmer and say, hey, what's the deal here? There's weeds that have grown up. We know we didn't plant the weeds. What, what is happening, right? And they say, do you want us to go take care of it? What should we do about it? I love this attitude, this determination. What can I do? In Memphis, we call it grit. This, this go get it, go take care of it, I'm going to handle it mentality. You wake up in the morning just going, who do I need to fight today? There's this go get it, got to get it done, eagerness that comes out of the servants. You see, there's something about being attacked by an enemy that brings people together. 
Maybe the most unified day in American history, at least in my lifetime, was September 12, 2001. Why? Because an enemy had come into the field. And for at least 24 hours, it didn't matter which side of the aisle you were on, what your background was, what religion you even followed, what color you were, for that moment... Everybody was together. Churches filled in prayer for our country. There's unity. There's emotion. Why? Because there was a fight. There's this enemy that's come in and has taken ground. And we stood up and we said, no, not on our watch. The farmer looks at them, they say, we, 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 they have this mentality, we take care of our own, we're going to get it done. They say, hey, the weeds are in the field and we're ready to go pull them up if you'll let us. And the farmer says, no. No. What do you mean no? Right? I have to believe the servants are going, okay, I'm doing the math here. What do you mean, you're just cool with the weeds in the field? Right? Like, is that that's okay with you? We worked all, all day and all night to try to figure this thing out and get everything planted just right. We're digging, we're, we're, we're planting, we're harvesting, all of this stuff. And all of a sudden, you're okay with this. But this is cool with you, right? We know how hard you've worked on this field. You know how hard we've worked on this field and how much you care about it. So why won't you let us take care of it? And here's what the farmer knew. There in verse 29. No, he said. And listen to this, when you pull up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, the analogy being his angels, his messengers, those that he will represent him. I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, time in bundles, and burn them. But collect the wheat, the good stuff, the crops collect them into my barn. The farmer knew that if the servants just went out and started wrecking shop, just taking the tools out to the field and just ripping everything that even looked like a weed up, that they would do damage to the very thing that was the reason they were in the field in the first place. That in an attempt to to pull up the weeds, they would actually damage the good stuff. They would hurt the thing that they're supposed to preserve and protect. They would would work against themselves. They'd cut their nose off despite their face. The farmer knew that it was going to take careful hands and an immense amount of wisdom to take care of the weeds. So he says, no, I'll take care of this one. I got it. The implication here is a powerful one and one that stopped me in my tracks when I read this. Not every weed is yours to pull. It's a contrasting statement, right? We're talking about ownership. We're talking about this this belonging, this sense of grab the bull by the horns. But not every weed is yours to pull. Not every fight is your fight. There are some battles that can and should be fought by the Lord. And what a word for us in the world we live in today, where there seems to be a battle on every corner, where we feel this pressure to, to chase down every issue in culture, 
where there seems to be a struggle on every street and in every season. What a word of relief. Not every weed is yours to pull. It causes me, if I'm honest with you, to ask a question. Am I choosing to fight the right battles? When I look at the energy and the time and the effort that I spend, am I aiming my, tar- am I aiming my weapon at the right target? Am I choosing to fight the right battles? Because the Bible says that the battle is not a physical one. It's not fought here. It's not fought now. It's a spiritual battle. One that is fought not in the scene, but in the unseen. What the farmer is saying is, if you're not careful, you're going to bring a physical sword to a spiritual fight. If you're not careful, you're going to bring a physical sword Today's weapon to fight tomorrow's battle. He says, hold on. That's what can happen. You see, the enemy would love nothing more than for you and I to keep blaming other people for the stuff that he does. He'd love it. For us to hate and to attack other people made in the image of God because we don't like the image of the enemy. For us to destroy the wheat... As we attempt to pull up the weeds. So the farmer says, no. I got it. Don't worry about this one. Those weeds are coming up. But they're mine to pull. However, I I do have to stop for a moment. And understand that, that, that there's something to be learned about this posture of the servants. This attitude the servants possess, right? For them to ask the question that they asked would have obviously been a good question to ask. If anything, it would have been awkward and and difficult to understand if they wouldn't have asked this question. If you think about it, they have a job, and it's the only job they have, and that job is to do whatever it takes to keep that field healthy. So to me, it makes perfect sense that they would say, hey, do you want us to go take care of this? Do you want us to go figure this thing out? If there's ever a moment... A time to shine, right? You ring the bell and they're coming. They, they wake up, they see, they're like, oh, oh boy. This, we're ready. Let's go. And I love that about them. And what challenges me about their response is not just what they said, but it's what they didn't say. Because what they didn't say as they walk by the field is, man, somebody should get on that. What they didn't say was, Maybe we can hire somebody to get that done. What they didn't say was, I just wish it was better. Let's bring it to Williamson County for a second. What they didn't say was, I'm going to send a nasty email to my HOA. You just wait. What they didn't say was, they obviously don't know how many followers I have on Facebook. And what they didn't say was maybe it's time we should start looking for a new field. If I can come to your living room for a moment, kick my feet up on your coffee table. This is the battle we fight. Pass the buck. It's not my responsibility. 
Somebody else will take care of it. That's not what came out of the servant's mouth. Because what came out of the servant's mouth, and we remember, their immediate response, they said, no, this is our job. I'm not interested in letting other people do it. I'm not going to hire it out. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to handle it. You can't help but notice that deep conviction, that sense of ownership, right? It jumps off the pages at you, just that immediate response of, I'm ready to go, right? I'm chomping at the bit. When we remember that this is a parable, a metaphor that Jesus uses, where he is the farmer, we are the servants, the field is the world, and the seeds are the work of the enemy. The weeds being the problem the enemy brings. And then we see how desperately eager the servants were to make an impact, to do good and to do away with bad, to clean house, to take ground back against the enemy, to take a stand and say, not on my watch, to take ownership. It wasn't theirs to own, but it didn't matter because I'm invested. I'm in. It's my responsibility. And I don't know about you, but this challenges me. It does. Even as I studied this week, it challenges me because it causes me to ask the question, what would I do? Take, take Graham and, and, and whatever his title is at Clearview now and put him into the story. What's my response? Would I have even noticed the weeds had grown up? Would I have been too busy chasing everything else? And if I did notice, would I have been one that would have taken responsibility? Or would I have been one to say, man, I wish, wish it didn't have to be that way. I wish somebody would get on that. What would I have done? Would I be fighting to be the first one in line to get out in the field and handle some business? You see, I don't know about you. But I'd much rather have the farmer try to hold me back than to wake me up. Because the farmer ultimately had to call the dogs off here. But I bet it felt good to know they were ready to run. He wasn't alone. They're ready to go. And I think, if we just want to be honest for a second, I think you and I start out that way. We... We come to Jesus, we make some sort of spiritual decision, we have a moment with the Lord, or we join a new church, or we join a new ministry, or get involved, and man, we are off and running. Just a freight train that can't be stopped, man, we are going. We're serving, we're investing, we're leading, we're loving, we're working, we're giving, we're doing everything we know how to do for the cause. We start out, hope springs eternal, blue skies. But then what happens? I know what happens for me. Life happens. Busyness creeps in. Calendars fill up. Time and money get spent. And before long, the competition for our time, our energy, our resources, our soil, wears us down to the point that we don't even realize the freight train that was once humming has slowly come to a crawl. It's still moving, but not as fast as it could, and not as fast as it used to. 
what was once a priority has now become an option. What was once an opportunity has now become an obligation. And what was once all that we knew has become something that we have to work to remember. It's a slow fade, friends. Al Capone was known as one of the most notorious gangsters in American history. Given to chasing frivolous, temporary, and, and, and honestly immoral things, he gave his life, ultimately, chasing things that didn't really matter. My wife and I attended, a, I went on a crime tour in Chicago a couple years ago. That's not a tour where you go commit crimes. That's a tour where you go, uh, they do those in Memphis. So, uh, sorry, I'm a Memphis boy. So, uh, yeah, yeah, Mark's from Memphis. Yeah, we get it. So, uh, crime tour in Chicago. We, we get on this bus and we begin to ride around downtown Chicago. And, and they, they basically, they take you to all these different landmarks from the early 1900s where things that we hear as folklore and in, in history books or whatever, where they happened, right here. In this building or on this street corner in front of this theater, whatever it might be. And Al Capone comes up early and often on that crime tour. A, a leader in the Chicago world in the early 1900s. Was chasing, in the Prohibition era, he was involved in the trafficking of substances, alcohol, drugs, all of those things. He was involved in extortion, murder, violence, prostitution, ultimately died of syphilis at the age of 48. Given to all of these other things, he was consumed with greed and with wealth and with the pursuit of success and of fame. What we also know about Al Capone is that at some point toward the end of his life, he had a come-to-Jesus moment. As the lesser-known story would go, he's in a, in a chapel in Alcatraz and attends a service where he raises his hand in the back of the room and responds with, I need forgiveness, I need repentance, I need mercy. As his illness overtook him and he was in the final days of his life, just a few heartbeats away from death, he was asked the question, Al, what do you want on your tombstone? What would you want us to put on the gravestone? What do you want your epitaph to be? He gave it some thought. Now Scarface Capone said, write three words. My Jesus, mercy. My Jesus, mercy. Implicit in that epitaph is the reality that Al Capone at the end of his life, when faced with his own mortality, when faced with the reality of death, looked back on his life and realized, I blew it. I squandered it. The one life that God had given me to live, the one gift that life was for me, I threw it away chasing everything else. That he'd spent his life chasing so many things that had no real value. Ultimately, things that would die with him. And in one sense, I understand, hopefully, for most of us in the room, we can't relate to the lifestyle of Al Capone. I would say the majority of us are not given to things such as extortion and murder, prostitution and the like. But in another sense, I think we might be able to relate. 
Because how many of us, if we're just totally honest, myself included, would get to a point in our life where we look through the rearview mirror back on a season of our life and we think, my Jesus, mercy. I wasted it. I blew it. I squandered it. I threw it away. I chased something that maybe wasn't immoral, maybe wasn't unethical, maybe it wasn't illegal, but it was something that was not meant to be the main thing. It was not meant to be the priority. Maybe it was a good thing, but it wasn't an eternal thing. That my best energy, my best time, my best resources went to something else. Went to something that will die with me. You see, it's this passage, if I can just be honest with you, it's this passage about wheat and weeds that shakes me to my core. Because I want to be like those servants. That at the first sight of an opportunity, I say, man, God, what do you want? I'm in. Whatever it takes, whatever I need to do, I'm all in. Whatever is on my agenda can wait. I'm clearing the calendar. Hold my calls. Because I'm in. I want in on this. I want to be the kind of man who keeps the kingdom of God at the forefront of what I do. I don't want it to be the salt on the meal that I eat in my life. I want it to be the meal. I want in. Because I, like I said earlier, I'd much rather him have to hold me back than to wake me up. Maybe for you, if you just get honest with yourself and with the Lord for a moment, you resonate with me. I can get that way and I work here. Most of it's some of your fault. I'm not immune to it. You're not immune to it. So I wonder today if, if, that, if that pricks your heart, if that, that resonates, it comes into your house and it rests on your couch and it sits with you and you go, man, there is a moment of my Jesus mercy. I want it to count. I want this ownership. I want this mindset, this posture. What would it be like, friends, if the family at Clearview Baptist Church, the people of God at 537 Franklin Road, were to take this posture. If 100% unanimous, every member of the family were to say, what do I need to do? What can I do? Do you want me to be a part of this? How different would Franklin be? You see, I don't know about you, but I moved here thinking we could change this place. I'll just be honest with you. I still think that. I still believe that. But it's going to take our all. It's going to take the here am I, send me moment. It's going to take the I don't want to pass the buck. It's not anybody else's responsibility. No, this is on me. I want it. And if he wants to call me off, he can call me off. But he's going to have to. Because, I mean, how different would our world be? What kind of impact could we make? What influence are we leaving on the table? 
as we pursue things that at the end of the day will just bring us back to my Jesus mercy. You know, you often don't think about sharing something with somebody like a tweet or an email or sending them a sermon or sending them a podcast. You don't often think of that as missions, but it is. It's not that you have to send it to the whole world or post every single thing we do at Clearview on your feed. But if, if you've heard a sermon or if you've listened to a podcast, think through your life. I mean, God, who needs to hear this? Sometimes it, it, it doesn't need to go on your Facebook page. Sometimes it needs to go on your Twitter. But sometimes just a simple text to one person can make all the difference in the world. Is sending them the Word of God in real time. Share it. You'll be surprised how far it goes.